1: Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio from Monday, February 26, 2024. The Supreme Court hears First Amendment free speech challenges to laws from Florida and Texas that restrict the ability of social media companies to moderate content on sites like X, YouTube, and TikTok. Laws that passed to address allegations that the social media companies censor conservative viewpoints. Just ahead, we'll talk about the cases with The Hill's legal affairs reporter, Zach Schoenfeld, and hear some of the oral argument. Funding for parts of the federal government expires midnight Friday. President Joe Biden has invited the big four of Congress, the Democratic and Republican leaders, the House and Senate, to the White House on Tuesday to discuss how to prevent a partial government shutdown. He also plans to talk to them about funding for Ukraine, Israel, the Palestinians and Taiwan, The $95 billion bill has passed the Senate, but not the House. Republicans in the House, they're pushing to add U.S. border security language that they can support. Some Democrats in Michigan are mounting a campaign to have people vote uncommitted instead of for President Joe Biden in Tuesday's presidential primary. And a Pentagon internal review of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's hospitalization in January and why the White House and the public were not told about it and his transfer of authority for several days finds no indication of ill intent or attempt to obfuscate. We'll hear from the Pentagon Press Secretary, Pat Ryder. The Supreme Court heard cases from Texas and Florida today asking whether laws in those states dealing with social media content would violate social media companies' free speech rights requiring them to put content on their sites that they object to. Joining us now to discuss it, Zach Schoenfeld, legal affairs reporter for The Hill. Thanks so much for being with us. A lot of argument today, four hours worth. What did you hear?
2: That's right. It was a lengthy argument, about four hours, which is... A, a lot longer than the Supreme Court tends to go. Uh, and over the course of those many hours, we saw the justices uh, really delving into what could be one of the most important cases involving the Internet and social media so far uh, that we've seen go through the court system. So at issue here are two laws, one from Texas and one from Florida, that uh, put various restrictions on social media platforms. And the goal of these were they were passed by Republican-led legislatures signed by Republican governors. In their minds, they would say uh, that social media platforms have been discriminating against conservatives. So these laws were enacted uh, to to confront those. Uh, So today, now the justices are considering uh, whether that violates the First Amendment. And I think the basic takeaway from today over the four hours of argument is that you saw some justices saying maybe some applications of these laws might be legal. But I think you did see them expressing skepticism that these laws in their entirety uh, and applications to every platform out there on the Internet uh, would be lawful.
1: This idea of a privately owned space being a modern public square, it's not the first time we've seen this, but has it, has the online area ever been incorporated into that?
2: It's certainly a recent line of cases that have been coming up through the court. As you mentioned, this is not the first time we've seen cases uh, coming up through the courts uh, in years past involving similar issues. In fact, at the Supreme Court this term, this is not the only case uh, that's involving Uh, social media. To give you an example, later this spring, the Supreme Court's going to hear a case uh, that's about whether the Biden administration's contacts with social media companies, encouraging them to take down uh, content that the Biden administration said was misinformation. There will be a case about whether that violates the First Amendment. Uh, So certainly a lot of cases percolating through the courts. but I think among them, uh, this could really potentially stand out because depending on how this ruling comes down, uh, this could really dictate uh, social media companies' ability Uh, to remove certain content from their platforms, to remove users from their platforms, because these laws, among the various prongs of these legislation, uh, it would prevent social media companies, for example, um, from deplatforming any candidate running for public office. Uh, So a lot of restrictions that it would place on social media companies. And I think you saw the justices over these many hours of argument really expressing concerns about how do they craft an opinion that really uh, meets the moment in all of these situations with just so many different platforms across the internet that operate in so many different ways. Uh, so I think so the justice is really expressing concerns about the, just quite literally the potential widespread impact of their decision.
1: We're talking with Zach Schoenfeld, legal affairs reporter for The Hill. Sometimes the Supreme Court looks for a way not to decide a case, some off-ramps. Was that discussed today?
2: I think you saw today in in somewhat of what was a middle ground. As I was saying before, I think you saw the Supreme Court. You saw a lot of justices expressing concerns about some of the requirements that this would put on traditional social media platforms, things like your Facebook news feed, for example, uh, and requirements that would prevent social media platforms from prioritizing certain content or, uh, you know, taking off certain content from your news feeds. Uh, I think you saw some justices expressing concerns about the the laws there. Um, But I think you also saw at the same time, the justices not necessarily looking for a ruling that would be a full-throated approach one way or the other, because whereas you saw justices expressing concerns about things like your Facebook news feed, your Instagram feed, they seem to be separating that out a bit from other internet services. For example, there were some justices who seemed to differentiate uh, email accounts and instant messaging services, saying that those potentially legally uh, should be treated a little bit differently. Uh, So I don't know if I would necessarily describe it as an off-ramp. That being said, I would not be surprised uh, when this ruling comes down uh, if it is not, you know, simple one way or the other. uh, These laws are entirely constitutional uh, or should be entirely struck down. I think there's a potential for some middle ground here.
1: And finally, can you see a unanimous decision coming out of this or were they split?
2: You definitely saw, I think, some justices agreeing on, on some points of this argument. Uh, so, for example, you know, one of the things that has that come up in these cases is is the posture of this case. One, the challenge uh, that was brought in Florida uh, was brought what is called a spatial challenge, meaning that uh, the Internet trade groups that uh, filed this lawsuit, they were seeking to take down this law and strike it down on its face and strike it down as invalid uh, entirely. Uh, and there are some justices on the court, like Clarence Thomas, for example, who for many years have cast doubt about litigants' ability to just do that in the first place. Uh, So I think you could see potentially some splits uh, on some of in terms of how to deal with the procedural posture of this case. Um, But at the same time, I think you also saw justices in both ideological camps at times expressing agreement. You saw justices uh, conservative justices building on uh, liberal justices today, uh, as they seem to, to really search for an answer here, like I said, that potentially would get them to sort of a middle ground. Uh, so I also would not shock to be seeing when this decision comes down. Uh, I would uh, not be surprised if this decision is not that straight six to three ideological ruling that we might be used to.
1: Zach Schoenfeld, legal affairs reporter for The Hill. Find his stories at thehill.com and on X at Zach A. Schoenfeld. Thank you very much.
2: Good to be with you.
1: And now some of the oral argument from the first of the Supreme Court cases today. Moody v. NetChoice. Moody is Florida's Attorney General Ashley Moody. NetChoice is a trade association of online businesses. Here is the Florida Solicitor General, Henry Whittaker, questioned by Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Elena Kagan.
3: Is there any aspect of uh, social media uh, that you think is protected by
4: the First Amendment? Uh. <coughs>
3: Yes, Your Honor, I can, I can certainly imagine uh, platforms that would be subject to this law that would have would indeed have First Amendment rights. I mean, we point out in our brief that when we think that if you had a an internet platform that indeed had a platform-driven message was selective on the front end, Democrats.com, I think that would be a very different kind of analysis compared to a company like Facebook or YouTube who is in the business of just basically Trying to get as many eyeballs on their site as possible, but
5: well, why is it different? Um, you, you know when we talked when we had the parade case, we said th- they don 't have a lot of rules, but they have some rules, and we 're going to respect the rules that they do have, even though they let a lot of people come in <clears throat> they don 't let a few people come in, and that seems to be quite important to them. And similarly here, I mean, uh, Facebook, YouTube, these are the paradigmatic social media companies that this law applies to. And they have rules about content. They say, you know, you can't have hate speech on the site. They say you can't have misinformation with respect <laughs> to particular subject matter areas. And they seem to take those rules. I mean, you know, somebody can say Maybe they should enforce them even more than they do, but they do seem to take them seriously. They have thousands and thousands of employees who are devoted to enforcing those rules. So why aren't they making uh, content judgments not quite as explicit as the, the kind in your hypothetical, but definitely they're making content judgments about the kind of speech that they think uh, they want on the site and the kinds of speech that they think is intolerable.
3: Well, well, there's a lot, lot in there, Your Honor. Maybe I can start with the Hurley case. I mean, I, I think what was going on in Hurley, I think, is that you had a parade that Could, was, could you d- d- maybe just start with the more general sure, question? Sure, sure, for, for sure. I mean, I'm happy for you to talk about Hurley. I don't want to you know, I'll get start in wherever your you way. want. It's your time, not mine, Your Honor. So, yeah. So, certainly, the, more, the broader question about rules of the road and the like. Uh, common carriers have always conducted their businesses subject to general rules of decorum i think the fact that the platforms have these general rules of decorum the fact remains that upwards of 99% for all that content moderation that's really a product of the fact that they have so they host so much content but the fact remains that 99 upwards of 99% of what goes on the platforms is basically passed through without review. Yes, they have spam filters on the front end and the like, and that's not... But that 1% seems to have gotten some people extremely angry, you know? The 1%
5: that's like, we don't want anti-vaxxers on our site, or we don't want insurrectionists on our site. I mean, that's what motivated these laws, isn't it? And that's what's getting people upset about them, is that other people have different views. About what it means to uh, to provide misinformation as to voting and things like that, and you know that's the point there's some sites that can say this kind of uh, 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 talk about vaccination policy is good, and some people can say it's bad, but it's up
3: to the individual speakers. The fact that some people are angry about the content moderation policies doesn't show that is their speech
1: Florida Solicitor General Henry Whittaker questioned by. Justice Elena Kagan and Chief Justice John Roberts in the Supreme Court case today, Moody v. Netchoice, one of two cases dealing with social media content regulation laws. This law was out of Florida, the second case out of Texas. Here's more from the oral argument from that first case from Florida. The attorney for Netchoice, Paul Clement, here questioned by Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson.
6: I think we agree that the government couldn't make editorial judgments about who can speak and what they can say in the public square. But what do you do with the fact that now, today, the Internet is the public square? And I appreciate that these uh, companies are private companies, but if the speech now is occurring in this environment, why wouldn't the same concerns about censorship apply?
7: So two reasons, Your Honor. I mean, one is I I really do think that censorship is only something the government can do to you. And if it's not the government, you really shouldn't label it censorship. It's just a category mistake. But here's the second thing. You would worry about this if websites like the cable companies in Turner had some sort of bottleneck control where they could limit your ability to go to some other website and engage in speech. So if the way websites worked was somehow that if you signed up for Facebook, then Facebook could limit you to only 19 other uh, websites, and Facebook could dictate which 20 websites you saw, then this would be a lot more like Turner. But as this court said in Reno in 1997, when it was confronted with an argument about the then-fresh Turner decision, this court basically said the Internet is like the opposite of Turner. Uh, it, there's so much information out there. The, it's so relatively easy to have a new website come on. And, like, reality tells us that, right? You know, like, X is not what Twitter was. Um, and TikTok came out of nowhere. All right, and, I think
6: I get your point. Let yeah. me just ask you about the illegitimate sweep point. So what is illegitimate about a government regulation? Um, that attempts to require these companies to apply consistently their procedures. I, do, I guess I don't understand why the enforcement of sort of anti-discrimination principles
7: um, is illegitimate. So consistency when what is being regu- – as a, as a government mandate, when what is being regulated is expressive activity – is, I think, a clear First Amendment violation. And I don't think, I mean, you know, some of these judgments are very tricky judgments. You know, okay, well, we, we're going we're gonna to take some of the stuff um, sort of celebrating October 7th off, but we want to have All right, what some- what about a
6: straightforward one, right? I understood that one of these was no um, candidate can be deplatformed. That seems pretty straightforward, Right. And, right. I and think so it's why isn't straight- that enforcing um, anti-discrimination principles? With no, can- If somebody is a candidate for office, they can't be de- deplatformed.
7: So that means they can't be deplatformed no matter how many times they violate my client's terms of use, no matter how horrible their conduct, no matter how misrepresenting they are in their speech, we still have to carry it. and Not just have to carry it, but under this statute, we have to give it pride of place. And it doesn't take much to register as a candidate in Florida. And so this gives a license to anybody, even if there's, you know, somebody who's only going to pull, you know, two percent in their local precinct, they can post anything they want. They can cause us to fundamentally change our editorial policies and have to ignore our, uh, our terms of use.
1: Attorney Paul Clement questioned by Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson in the Supreme Court oral argument in the case of Moody v. Netchoice. The second case today was NetChoice v. Paxton, and Paxton is Ken Paxton. The Texas Solicitor General challenged a similar Texas law. About four hours of oral argument total. We covered it all live on the C-SPAN networks, and you can find the video of the audio, only audio now coming out of the Supreme Court, at our website, cspan.org. This is Washington Today. Another story about the Supreme Court from USA Today that begins, don't honk if you agree. The Supreme Court on Monday upheld a California traffic law that bans honking, other than to warn another driver. Turning down a challenge to the law from a woman ticketed for honking while driving by a rally outside her congressman's office in 2017. Susan Porter had argued her beeps of support were protected by the First Amendment. Her lawyers wrote in their appeal, the car horn is the sound of democracy in action. USA Today article concludes that justices declined without comment to review California's law. Story from Axios. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, and the House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, exchanged harsh public comments on Sunday over negotiations on government spending. Multiple federal agencies are set to shut down on Friday unless the two leaders reach a deal this week to keep them funded. In a Dear Colleague letter on Sunday evening, Schumer said intense discussions with Johnson's team on spending are ongoing. Schumer said he hoped to have a bill text for a spending deal this weekend, but that House Republicans, quote, need more time to sort themselves out. He wrote, unfortunately, extreme House Republicans have shown they're more capable of causing chaos than passing legislation and calling on Speaker Johnson to buck the extremists in his caucus and do the right thing. Speaker Johnson shot back in a statement, blasting the counterproductive rhetoric in Schumer's letter, saying the House has worked nonstop and is continuing to work in good faith. Speaker accused Schumer of failing to mention new Democrat demands not included in the Senate's spending bills. And he said Senate Democrats are attempting at this late stage to spend on priorities that are farther left than what the chamber agreed upon. That was from Axios. The Senate is in today. Here is Senator Schumer on the Senate floor about spending and also the national security supplemental spending request from President Biden, aid to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan.
4: The Senate gavels back into session with a lot that Congress must do, but with little time to act. In less than a week, the federal government will begin to shut down unless both sides, both sides work together to extend funding. Meanwhile, the moral obligation from Congress to help the people of Ukraine and fortify our own national security grows heavier with each passing day. And it's imperative that we make real progress in the coming weeks towards our ultimate goal of finishing the appropriations process. There are ju- these are just a few of the tasks facing Congress as winter turns to spring. The margin for error on any of these is razor thin. And unfortunately, the temptation to choose chaos and disorder instead of cooperation will be strong for some here in the Capitol. By now, it is clear that when serious-minded Democrats and serious-minded Republicans engage each other with a desire to get things done, with a desire to get to yes, good things happen, even in divided government. We avoid shutdowns. We invest in the American people. We make our country stronger. The Senate ended the last work period with a powerful example of bipartisanship, by resoundingly 70 votes passing the National Security Supplemental. It wasn't easy to get it done, but now that we succeeded, it should serve as a model for both chambers moving forward. Over the recess, negotiators in both chambers continue the difficult work of the appropriations process. While we've made some good progress on a number of fronts, unfortunately, our House Republican colleagues are still struggling to figure themselves out. There's a lot of uncertainty over how the House will proceed in the coming days, so I ask all senators to keep their schedules flexible.
1: Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, on the Senate floor. The House is not in session for legislative business today or tomorrow. Members return on Wednesday. Congressman Warren Davidson, Republican from Ohio, posting on X. The House Republican Conference needs to unite to do what we said we would do one, cut spending, fund the government as current law requires at the Fiscal Responsibility Act levels, two, secure the border. Attached policy to force acceptance or negotiation by the Senate and by administration, surrendering now while promising to fight later was never going to work. And now it has been proven again. Hashtag deeds, not words. That was the post from Congressman Warren Davidson. And he attached a bit of his interview
8: on Fox
4: News.
9: Do you expect a partial shutdown on March 8th?
8: Uh, Good morning, Maria. Well, I certainly hope not. I think, uh, unfortunately, the probability is 0.01%. I I doubt that uh, my colleagues will unite to to really do what I think we should do, which is prioritize funding our own government and, frankly, securing our own border. And the only way we're going to get that is if we send over something that does fund our government at the levels agreed to in the Fiscal Responsibility Act. That passed two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate. Joe Biden signed it. Uh, while the Four Corners has said we want a different deal, the body of the House, the body of the Senate hasn't voted on that. And uh, we should stick to what we already agreed to with the Fiscal Responsibility Act. And we should send over some version of H.R. 2. That should go to reconcile. If it can be done, it doesn't look likely with what the Senate's plan has been done. Uh, yeah. The Senate passed a version that isn't good. Uh, they think our version isn't good, but we know we need to secure the board.
9: So uh, it it sounds like the way that we don't see a partial government shutdown is through another continuing resolution. Is that where we're headed? Another CR?
8: Well, you know, the speaker says he's not going to sign another one. Uh, So I I hope that uh, I hope that we stick to our guns and send over our funding bill and force a negotiation.
1: Congressman Warren Davidson, Republican from Ohio, interviewed by Maria Bartiromo on Fox Business today. White House says that President Joe Biden will be traveling on Thursday to the U.S.-Mexico border, Brownsville, Texas. It's the same day that Donald Trump, former president and Republican presidential candidate this year, will also be at the border. He'll be in Eagle Pass, Texas, about 300 miles away. President Joe Biden has invited the four corners, big four, bipartisan congressional leadership house and Senate to the White House on Tuesday to discuss government funding and the president's $95 billion supplemental spending bill to aid Ukraine, Israel, the Palestinians, and Taiwan. It's passed the Senate, It's not come up in the House for a vote. The White House Press Secretary Queen Jean-Pierre answered questions about this meeting in an Air Force One news conference.
7: What is the president's uh, idea of success coming out of that meeting? I mean, he's had these lawmakers over to the White House previously and has not moved the ball on the supplemental. You know, what is he hoping to get out of it tomorrow?
9: done these types of uh, meetings before and it has moved the ball right as you know with the deal as it relates to the budget uh, when we were dealing with the debt ceiling it moved that it, we were he was able to move that ball forward look he was able to move the ball forward in the senate to get a bipartisan negotiation on the border a security deal that was rejected obviously by republicans because of the last uh, president and uh, president trump to be exact and what he was able to do obviously putting politics over the american people and but also what we were able to do on the Senate side is get, uh, move, removing the board security, was able to get a national security supplemental that passed out of the Senate. Senate 70 to 29, it passed out of the Senate. Now it needs to go to, to the House. So we have seen uh, some movement. We have seen the President's leadership on this. Look, what the President wants to see is we want to make sure that the, the, the national security uh, interests of the American people gets put first, right? It is not used as a political football right we want to make sure that gets done and we also want to see that you know that that the government does not get shut down it is a basic basic uh priority or duty of of uh, congress is to keep the government open so that's what the president wants to see he'll have those conversations obviously not going to get ahead of the agenda uh for that the president's gonna you know of, of the president what he's going to discuss uh, but these things are incredibly important
1: the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, speaking to reporters on Air Force One. They were all flying from Washington up to New York. The White House says that the president has campaign meetings in New York. Also, he plans to tape an appearance on NBC's Late Night with Seth Meyers. It marks the 10th anniversary of that show. And they note that then-Vice President Joe Biden appeared on the first episode, February 2014. Also, regarding Ukraine funding, Hungary's parliament has voted to ratify Sweden's application to join NATO, the last of NATO's 31 members to do so. It will take a few more steps within Hungary's government to make it official. More about U.S. government funding deadlines. We spoke with Rhys Gorman, politics reporter for The Daily Beast on this morning's Washington Journal on C-SPAN.
10: So the first deadline is March 1st. So they have four bills that are going to be that are going to expire on March 1st. So they really have not started passing any of those bills. We have not seen what those bills will look like. They have a top-line spending number agreed to, but they still have to work out what exactly is going to be in those bills. That was We were supposed to see that yesterday. That got pushed back. Senator Chuck Schumer has blamed House Republicans um, for the reasoning of this. They've, he's blamed it for the delay. Um, John, Mike Johnson, the Speaker, has pushed back on that, saying that Schumer has been playing politics with all of this. Um, But in the end of the day, I mean, House Republicans are pushing for these conservative policy riders, which would be policy attached to government funding. And when you only have half of one branch of government, you're not really always going to get what you want. And so that's kind of the push and shove going on right now. Expecting to see something soon because, I mean, they do have to start passing it when they come back on Wednesday. Otherwise, it's going to be a big issue. and We're probably going to see somewhat of a short shutdown if they don't release some bills soon. I was going to say, is there a plan A, a plan B, and other plans in the works in order to keep that from happening? I think the main plan right now would likely be a minibus, which would be these three or four bills wrapped up into one and they vote on them at one time. I mean, to vote on four individual appropriations bills is just unrealistic given the time frame from now to March 1st. Um, another possibility is just another short-term continued resolution, which Mike Johnson did kind of raise on the, a conference call last Friday with members. Um, they, they Maybe we'll do a continued resolution just to push it down just a little bit to give them time while also pass just a handful of bills this week. We'll see if that plays out. I guess the other possibility is a shutdown. That's always another option. Um, Mike Johnson said he does not want a shutdown. He does not think that would be good for the country, but it's a possibility that there could be a shutdown and looking how we, Congress and the House especially, is only in session for three days this week and government shuts down March 1st, it's becoming ever more likely. that. I will think be. Speaker Johnson also wrote to the conference saying, look, not everyone's going to get what they want uh, from yes. this process. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so the House Freedom Caucus, which is the conservative wing of the Republican Conference, have really been pushing for these conservative policy writers. They really want just these policies, whether it be on um, on the ag bill, for example, the Abortion pill, the mailing of that, they want that gone. Um, and so they want these sort of riders to put for their conservative policies attached to government funding. But this is not something that can happen when you're in the minority in the Senate, when you don't have the White House and you have a very slim majority in the House, which is your own chamber. And so that's really where he was kind of elaborating that... They are not going to get everything they want because they. some people want this. And even some moderates in their conference don't want everything that the conservatives want. Democrats won't vote for anything the conservatives want policy-wise. And so this is just something that's not really going to happen. And they kind of have to get their heads around that, that they're not going to get all these policy wins.
1: Reese Gorman, politics reporter for the Daily Beast on C-SPAN's Washington Journal program this morning. Funding for military construction, water development, and the Departments of Agriculture, Energy, Veterans Affairs, Transportation, and Housing and Urban Development run out this Friday. The remaining eight spending bills funding the rest of the government expires March 8th. Wall Street today, the Dow down 62, NASDAQ down 20, S&P down 19. From Associated Press, the Federal Trade Commission sued to block proposed merger between grocery giants Kroger and Albertsons, saying the $24.6 billion deal would eliminate competition and lead to higher prices for millions of Americans. The FTC filed a lawsuit in U.S. District Court in Oregon. It was joined by the Attorneys General of Eight States and the District of Columbia. Together, Kroger and Albertsons would control about 13% of the U.S. grocery market, By comparison, Walmart controls 22 percent, according to J.P. Morgan analyst Ken Goldman. Both companies said that they will challenge the FTC in court. That was reporting from Associated Press. From Bloomberg News, advanced semiconductor companies have requested more than double the amount of available federal funds for projects in the U.S., Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said, referring to a program designed to bring chip manufacturing back to American soil. Leading-edge firms, which include Intel Corporation, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, and Samsung Electronics Company, are seeking more than $70 billion from the 2022 CHIPS Act, Raimondo said Monday, in remarks at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. That was the story from Bloomberg. C-SPAN covered this event. Here's part of her speech.
11: By the end of this decade, by 2030, The United States of America will be the only country in the world where new chip architectures can be invented in our new research labs, including those funded by the NSTC. They'll be designed in the United States for every end-use application you can think of, manufactured at scale in the United States by well-paid American workers and packaged with the most advanced technology in the world all on our shores. And engineering schools all over the country will be pumping out more engineers and technicians trained specifically for the chips industry. We're gonna make Building hardware sexy again. How about that? Doesn't that sound fun? We need computer scientists to build software. We want those LLMs built in America. But how about making the hardware? Right here in America with a dignified, decent, high-paying job.
1: Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Washington Today continues in a moment.
11: This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team, along with my colleague Nate. Join us as we celebrate C-SPAN's 45th anniversary and our inaugural Founders Day campaign.
2: It all started as a bold experiment on March 19, 1979, when C-SPAN first brought coverage of the House of Representatives into living rooms across America. Let's celebrate C-SPAN's visionary founders who believed in offering unfiltered access to the inner workings of our political process. From Congress, to the White House, to the courts and beyond, C-SPAN has documented history unfolding without commentary or spin for over four decades help us
11: keep it going. Visit c slash donate today to give a gift in celebration of C-SPAN's Founders Day. Your donation honors the original vision of C-SPAN's founders and helps to advance our mission for years to come. Make your donation today at c slash donate. Thank you.
1: Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app, which is free and wherever you find your podcasts. Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel, writes Associated Press, will leave her post on March 8th. Having been forced out of the GOP's national leadership as Donald Trump moves towards another presidential nomination and asserts control over the party, McDaniel announced her decision in a statement on Monday morning. She wrote, I have decided to step aside at our spring training on March 8th in Houston to allow our nominee to select a chair of their choosing. The RNC has historically undergone change once we have a nominee, and it has always been my intention to honor that tradition. The AP article continues. The move was not a surprise. Trump earlier in the month announced his preference for North Carolina GOP chair Michael Watley, a little-known veteran operative focused in recent years on the prospect of voter fraud to replace McDaniel. Trump also picked his daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, to serve as committee co-chair. Again, that was from AP. Donald Trump is being challenged by Nikki Haley for the Republican presidential nomination. And she spoke today about Donald Trump and the RNC at a news conference in Grand Rapids, Michigan, before a campaign rally and ahead of Tuesday's presidential primary in that state.
9: Look at what's happening at the RNC. The idea that they would be choosing a chair and a director before a primary is over is a massive control move by Donald Trump the idea that there is a resolution out there in the RNC saying Donald Trump can't use this, the RNC for his legal slush fund and he's upset that that was proposed, tells you everything you need to know the idea that those now moving into the RNC are saying the RNC is only going to be about Donald Trump you can hang up House, you can hang up Senate and the rest of the ticket. It is now becoming, the Republican Party's now becoming Donald Trump's playpen.
1: Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley, former South Carolina governor in Grand Rapids, Michigan, today. Donald Trump today appealed his $454 million civil fraud judgment in New York, challenging the judges finding that he lied about his wealth to get better bank loan terms. Also, prosecutors in the Donald Trump hush money criminal case in New York asking the judge there to impose a gag order, citing Donald Trump's, quote, long history of making public and inflammatory remarks about people involved in legal cases. The trial is scheduled to start in a couple of weeks. A spokesperson for the Trump campaign, Stephen Chung, in a statement saying today, the two-tiered system of justice implemented against President Trump is on full display with a request by another deranged Democrat prosecutor seeking a restrictive gag order, if granted, It would impose an unconstitutional infringement on President Trump's First Amendment rights, including his ability to defend himself and the rights of all Americans to hear from President Trump. Back to Michigan and the presidential primary, both Republican and Democratic parties, on Tuesday, a New York Times article writing that Donald Trump narrowly lost Michigan to Joseph R. Biden Jr. in 2020 after a presidential term alienating independents and suburban women the segments of the electorate that make up a strong part of Miss Haley's small but not insignificant base. And her campaign has counted the state as one of more than a dozen that are critical to her path to the nomination because they have primaries not limited to registered Republicans. But the difficulty for Miss Haley in Michigan, which holds its primary on Tuesday, is similar to that in the early voting states. She's running for the Republican Party's presidential nomination. And the base is sticking with him. The strength that she has shown with more moderate voters, even Democrats, has not been enough to overcome his significant advantage. That from The New York Times. As mentioned, the Democratic Party also holding its presidential primary in Michigan on Tuesday. And there is a protest campaign movement among some Democrats to not vote for President Biden, but vote for uncommitted. Sophia Kai, Axios political reporter, has more.
12: You have an effort to get people to vote uncommitted in the Democratic primary, and that's because there are activists who say that Biden uh, really has not handled the Israel-Palestine uh, warwell and they're trying to call attention to that I mean this is a big issue for the Arab uh, population in Michigan as well as for younger Gen Z and Millennial voters um so you know the real question is how much of a dent will they be able to put in Biden's win and if it'll be more than the ceasefire effort uh, that we saw in New Hampshire that, you know, barely even made a difference.
13: Who is driving
10: this uncommitted effort? Is it a group, several groups? Who are the forces behind that?
12: Yeah, so it's uh, it's a group in Michigan called uh, Listen Up Michigan, and uh, it's supported by a prominent congresswoman, Rashida Tlaib, whose sister is driving that effort. And uh, the congresswoman has uh, been very supportive. She said that, you know, foreign President Trump is a threat to democracy. And if Biden doesn't take uh, the concerns of Michigan voters seriously, as it pertains to, you know, Israel's bombing of Palestine, then you know, he may risk his uh, his general election, uh, and so. That is, uh, you know, supported also by another former member of Congress. Uh, and and those are some strong voices in this movement. And then we also have someone like Michigan Governor uh, Whitmer, who said she really doesn't know what will happen uh, on uh, on Tuesday for the primary.
1: Sophia Kai, Axios political reporter on C-SPAN's Washington Journal program this morning. We'll hear from Governor Whitmer in just a moment. But first, that group, listened to Michigan?, posting a video on X.
9: I'm
12: a Democrat and I'm voting uncommitted. I'm a Democrat and I'm voting uncommitted.
3: I'm voting uncommitted on the Democratic ballot this election season.
12: And I am voting uncommitted in the
14: upcoming presidential primary, February 27th to show President Biden and the Democrats that right now I'm
3: a single issue voter. Joe Biden does not stand with my values as a progressive voter.
12: Because my vote for Joe Biden is being used to send billions of dollars for bombs overseas instead of to fulfill the campaign promises that he made to us. We can't wait until
14: November to stand against the genocide.
7: Because my faith teaches me to use my voice to speak out against oppression and injustice.
12: Because Joe Biden promised to restore the soul of our nation, but then he slaughtered 30,000 souls in Gaza.
7: I believe in human rights for all people
3: and I'm also a Jewish ally.
7: And I believe in the power of using each of our voices as a part of a collective civic action.
14: Right now on February 27th, we're gonna use our voting power to encourage the current administration to call for a ceasefire, a permanent and immediate ceasefire in Gaza.
3: That is why I am voting uncommitted.
14: To send a clear message to President Joe Biden that I do not support his reelection for a presidency while he continues to fund a genocide against innocent Palestinians. Even if
11: you're an independent, you can vote uncommitted under the Democratic ticket, and I urge you to do so. I stand with humanity.
1: The group listened to Michigan, posting that video on X. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat, one of seven co-chairs of the Biden-Harris re-election campaign, was interviewed on CNN on Sunday about Tuesday's Democratic presidential primary in Michigan.
0: I'm not sure what we're going to see on Tuesday, to tell you the truth. I can tell you this, that um, Michigan has been so fortunate to be the home of a robust Arab, Muslim, Palestinian Um, community and a robust jewish community we've lived in harmony as neighbors for decades and there's a lot of pain all across all of these communities um, because of what's happening halfway around the world i know that um, we've got this this primary and we will see differences of opinion i just want to make the case though that it's important not to lose sight of the fact that any vote that's not cast for joe biden supports a second Trump term. A second Trump term would be devastating, not just on fundamental rights, not just on our democracy here at home, but also when it comes to foreign policy. This was a man who promoted a Muslim ban. This is, I think, a very high stakes moment. I am encouraging people to cast an affirmative vote for President Biden.
1: Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Democrat and co-chair of the Biden-Harris re-election, interviewed on CNN on Sunday. From Associated Press, an active duty member of the U.S. Air Force has died after he set himself ablaze outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., while declaring that he, quote, will no longer be complicit in genocide. The 25-year-old airman Aaron Bushnell of San Antonio, Texas, died from his injuries, the Metropolitan Police Department said Monday. That was Associated Press. This came up at the Pentagon briefing with the press secretary, Pat Ryder, an Air Force major general.
14: Yesterday, an active duty service member settled himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy in protest of U.S. support for Israel's operations in Gaza. Has the secretary been briefed on Airman Bushnell, and is he concerned that maybe this airman's actions uh, may indicate that there's a, a bigger issue within the military as far as U.S. support for this ongoing operation?
13: Yeah, so uh, the secretary is following the situation. I know the Air Force has confirmed the airman's death. Uh, They do plan to provide additional information 24 hours after next of kin notifications are complete. Uh, It certainly is a tragic event. Uh, We do extend our condolences to the airman's family. Uh, In terms of the incident itself, Tara, uh, as you know, the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department has the lead for responding to questions about that incident. So, So anything on that? Uh, I'd have to refer you to to them.
14: But is the secretary concerned that this might indicate that there's a a deeper issue, maybe U.S. military being uh, military personnel being concerned about how uh, weapons and support for Israel is being used on civilians in Gaza?
13: Well, look, from a Department of Defense standpoint, since Hamas's brutal attacks on October 7th, we've been focused on the four key areas that the Secretary set out from the onset. That's protecting U.S. forces and citizens in the region, supporting Israel's inherent right to defend itself from terrorist attacks, working closely with Israel to support and secure the release of hostages from Hamas, and ensuring that the crisis, the conflict between Hamas and Israel, doesn't escalate into a broader regional conflict. And so those objectives are what continue to inform our approach to the situation in the middle east and as we've talked about before while our support for israel's inherent right to defend itself is ironclad we've also continued to actively communicate our expectations that israel take civilian safety and humanitarian assistance into account into their operations you see that incorporated into every conversation the secretary has with his counterpart in israel as well as other u.s officials and we expect them to continue to adhere to the law of armed conflict and international humanitarian law. We'll continue to do that.
1: Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder, questioned by Associated Press Pentagon correspondent Tara Kopp at today's briefing. Another issue that came up at the Pentagon News Conference, as CBS News reports, an internal review of the transfer of authority during Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's hospitalization in January found that while Processes could be improved. Nothing examined during this review demonstrated any indication of ill intent or an attempt to obfuscate. According to an unclassified summary of the review released by the Pentagon Monday, the rest of the review remains classified. The three-page unclassified summary, in part, blames the lack of information sharing on the unprecedented situation and says that Secretary Austin's staff was trying to respect his medical privacy. That was reporting from CBS News. Back to the news conference and the questions to Press Secretary Pat Ryder.
14: First on the 30-day review, uh, reading the unclassified summary, you're left with an impression that this was just somewhat blameless, like just couldn't be helped due to privacy laws. But the secretary is not a private person. He's six in line in succession to the presidency. How did privacy keep this information from getting to the commander-in-chief and getting, you know, why was that a reason?
13: Well, Tara, as the Secretary has said, the buck stops with him, and he's taken responsibility for not notifying the the President uh, and the White House sooner. Uh, And the review is also clear uh, that there can be more guidance for how determinations are made, executed, and communicated. Um, But again, as the uh, Office of the Director of Administration and Management conducted this review, they found nothing uh, during the review that demonstrated any indication of ill-attempt intent or attempt to obfuscate by the individuals involved. So uh, as you saw us do very quickly, uh, we took some immediate steps to ensure that uh, there were actions taken to improve communication with organizations uh, such as the White House and the president. Uh, and you saw us demonstrate that most recently uh, when the secretary visited Walter Reed on February 11.
1: Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder, the Defense Department's Inspector General also has launched an independent review of the handling and disclosure of the Defense Secretary's hospitalization. And Secretary Austin will be testifying about this on Thursday before the U.S. House Armed Services Committee, 10 a.m. Eastern. You can listen to it live on C-SPAN radio. And thanks for listening to Washington today. Subscribe to C-SPAN's free evening newsletter, Word for Word, and you'll get the stories making headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Sign up at cspan.org connect. Have a good night.